This podcast is brought to you by Belong, Australia's first carbon neutral telco and winner of Finder's Green Telco of the Year 2020. Hi, welcome back to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm Adrian Lowe. Coming up this episode, we learn about how to get your property in shape so it can save you money and help save the planet. How's that for some forward sizzle? Then we hear about some exciting, albeit slightly confronting, new technology for your bathroom. Regardless of where you live, the weather's changing, and in many cities around the country, it's getting much cooler. Many of us will turn up the heating, but it may still feel pretty cold. In many cases, Australian houses, even more modern ones, aren't built for our extreme weather conditions. So, apart from tearing down the house and starting again, what can be done? In some cases, retrofitting can help. Not only can it keep us warmer or cooler, but it encourages better energy efficiency, which in turn saves money on bills. With us now to talk through it is Dr. Treves Moore. He's a senior lecturer at the School of Property, Construction and Project Management at RMIT University. He's also a member of the Sustainable Building Innovation Laboratory. Treves, thanks for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. Can you explain what retrofitting actually means? Sure. So I guess in its simplest kind of form, it is any of those activities that you would do to your dwelling to improve the overall performance. So that might be in terms of improving the environmental performance. It might be about reducing running costs. It might be about improving the livability and the health and wellbeing outcomes of the dwelling. And so these are things like potentially putting in solar panels or changing the insulation or things like that. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess uh, it, where it differs from something like a, a renovation where you're extending a house or adding an additional room or redoing your bathroom is it is focused on those um, technologies, materials or design changes which will lead to those improved performance. So you mentioned the solar panels there. You would include those to be able to reduce your running costs and to offset your impacts from the environment. Um, from your use of energy. Mm. And solar panels, I suppose, are probably one of the most common things, particularly over the past couple of years for retrofitting. But what are some of the easiest things to retrofit and to involve in this sort of process? Yeah, so I guess this is a really interesting question because it depends a little bit on the type of dialing, where you are around Australia and also what you want to achieve. So, for example, are your motivations to reduce your environmental impact? Is it to reduce your living costs or is it to improve? your health and well-being or, or some sort of combination of those. It also depends a little bit on things like how old the dwelling is, what is the condition of the dwelling to begin with and what type. So we see different kind of retrofit opportunities between detached housing, for example, in comparison to apartments. But there are some common things that you can look to do. And you, you talked about solar there. We see have seen a rapid uptake of solar in Australia and it's still remains a very kind of cost-efficient and effective way to have solar as, as part of that retrofit process and that will immediately start to you know, reduce your living costs. Uh, but there are a number of other things that you could look to do and probably should look to do before you jump to putting solar on, including sealing up all the gaps and cracks around your house, improving or adding um, ceiling insulation and underfloor insulation if you can get access 
under your dwelling. But then there's also things like improving appliances and improving the energy and water efficiency of those appliances, things like light bulbs, but also things like the water efficiency elements of, of tap, showers, toilets, as well as the, the larger appliances as well. So when you go to replace your fridge, seeking out a more energy efficient fridge as well. Then probably on the list comes something like solar, but also we shouldn't forget some of the basic things like making sure you have good quality heavy window coverings to help regulate the thermal performance of your dwelling as well. Then if you're talking about some of the kind of the higher cost things that you might do once you've ticked off all those other things, it's probably things like double glazed windows and improving or updating your, your heating and cooling systems. Yeah, that was going to be my next question around the cost of this, because some of those things that you mentioned seem to be pretty affordable. Others probably are very expensive. So is it the case that you can kind of retrofit to your budget and depending on your circumstance, whether you're a renter or an owner? Yeah, absolutely. And in the, the research that we've been doing at RMIT around retrofit, we see exactly that happening where people kind of do those things that they can afford to do at that point in time. And then they'll save for the next retrofit activity. Of course, if, if you're doing everything at once, you can find some cost efficiencies there. Um, but what we see is most of the time people are chipping away at retrofit, doing one thing at a time or a small number of things at a time. Um, and there are things that you can do that are you know, either free or, or cheaper um, and can have some quite significant impact. Sealing the gaps and cracks, for example, requires you going to Bunnings, you know, getting some of the, the various sealants that they sell there, and you can do that work yourself very easily. Whereas if you're talking about things like double glazed windows, for example, that is a lot more of a disruptive process, a lot more expensive, and would require a little bit more planning on behalf of the homeowner. There are a number of programs around the, the different states in Australia which offer different financial rebates to help also reduce the cost of some of these activities. And so it's well worth looking into those different activities. And people are perhaps most aware of the, the rebates around solar, but there are a number of other programs, such as through the Victorian Energy Upgrades Program, that offer rebates or, or some sort of financial assistance for other elements. It's certainly easier if you're doing it, this as an owner-occupier, but there are also opportunities for renters and landlords to engage in retrofit as well. Mm. You mentioned there that it can be quite different depending on where you live. Is there a particular state that's leading the way in terms of some of these rebates or schemes to encourage retrofit? Because, you know, we do tend to see when you want to change people's thinking that, you know, these sorts of schemes can be quite effective. So is there one particular state that's leading things off? Yeah, I'd probably say the Victorian government with some recent announcements and the actions of through their Victorian Energy Upgrades Program over the past decade or so have really demonstrated a, a good way forward and providing some of that support. Uh, but again, you know, there's, there's a lot more that can be done in terms of the, the support provided, but also from the retrofit industry as well in terms of upscaling. One of the other things I think is the idea of energy efficiency in, in many ways probably isn't that new. And I think, you know, I can remember being at my grandparents' place and having carpet snakes. And, you know, if you can remember those little old school things, um, is it surprising to you that we're still having these sorts of discussions about, you know, making sure our homes are fit for purpose in 2021? Yeah. Well, I, my my whole research area is around how do we make our housing mm. more, more sustainable? And I guess I'm 
across the examples and see what we can and should be doing, not only in Australia but internationally. If we look larger picture and, and think about the transition to that zero or low carbon future by you know, 2050, if not earlier, making improvements in the residential sector um, is going to have to happen. And in fact, much of the analysis from around the world shows that making those energy efficiency and sustainability improvements in the residential sector is one of the most cost efficient ways of, of helping that transition. Now, we're seeing some discussion, I guess, happening at the moment in Australia around potential changes to the construction code and, and lifting the minimum requirements there. And I think that it's a no-brainer to have to lift those requirements to ensure we're not locking in new housing into kind of poorer quality performance moving forward. But we also need to make sure that people are uh, engaging in retrofit, but not just doing one-off activities, not just changing the light bulbs or, or putting the carpet snake down by the door, but thinking about how can they do this more holistically? How can we get some of these deeper retrofits occurring? Um, and we see that the, re the evidence shows that housing built before probably about 2005 rates somewhere between about one to three stars out of 10, with 10 being the best for um, thermal performance. And what we see is that you can cost efficiently lift the performance of that housing up to somewhere around what the minimum new house standard is of around six stars. So we can see some quite significant improvements through some, I guess, well-known and tested approaches to retrofit. So there should really be no reason we are not engaging more in, in retrofit. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, whether we are seeing a need for these sorts of retrofit activities more on older homes. But you flagged there that even to 2005, we're still having many of these sorts of um, issues as well. Are there any particular types of housing or housing of certain eras that, you know, I'm thinking potentially here of like Queenslanders or, you know, modernist style houses where they are built to address the elements and, you know, encourage breeze and light and, you know, potentially some passive house elements. Are there any particular type of historic homes that are built better to suit the climate and, you know, to cut back on energy usage? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think the, the Queenslander is perhaps the best example that we have in Australia of a house design that attempts to try and make use of the natural conditions. I think some of the older style houses um, different states of, around Australia perhaps do that a little bit more as well. Uh, but certainly the, the newer housing that we've been seeing over recent decades is more designed with a kind of a price point in mind. It's designed around trying to maximise the area on a ever-decreasing block size. And so you start to see some of those really practical design things drop out, such as you know, having eaves, making sure you've got setbacks, making sure you've thought about the ventilation of the dwellings and what that means is that we're designing and constructing houses that are increasingly reliant on needing mechanical heating and cooling and you know, this i guess is potentially okay but what we see in recent summers is you know when you have a large-scale rolling blackout these houses are terribly uncomfortable to live in the cost of energy is increasing every year so they are more going to cost more and more to live in and there are some cheaper, easy option wins that we can be doing to these types of houses to make sure that they're performing better, not just now, but with the, the changing climate in mind as well. Mm. 
I was going to ask, you know, are people getting more interested in the idea of retrofit? I'm not sure what your research might tell you about consumer sentiment on this topic, but are we seeing a sort of a change in people's openness to doing this work on their house or even when they're looking for a new house, potentially assessing its um, uh, energy efficiency? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of things there. I think in the new housing space, we are starting to see a, a slight shift towards people starting to realise the value of other things other than just number of bedrooms and you know what the kitchen bench top is made out of. So starting to hear certainly that there are, I guess, a, a slight shift in the new housing market to, towards people asking those questions and and really starting to seek out some of those options that might deliver improved performance for the existing housing space i think the impacts of covid-19 and everyone spending a lot more time at home has really started to shift that to some degree and um, particularly because a lot of these retrofit activities can be kind of diy activities you can do a lot of this yourself so i think as people have spent more time at home over the past year there's probably been a greater realization of how poor our, our housing is particularly you know, during the, the peak winter and summer months and people are starting to think about, well, how do we improve the quality? How do we improve the performance? And what are the options there? There are a range of services around to, to help people go down that retrofit path. So you can still do some of those things yourself or you can reach out to various experts to help you there. But you can also, as a starting point, get somebody who is a sustainability or energy assessor to come into your dwelling and provide that independent expert opinion, which also generally includes a list of priorities of different actions you can take as well. So I think people are realising that there's a lot of information out there around how to do retrofit and it's now just about how do we link people up with that information and with the right type of retrofit activities. The other thing you mentioned before is just the cost of it. I, I guess, you know, it can be reasonably cheap or it can be quite expensive, but how long does it usually take for these investments to kind of pay for themselves in terms of the money you're saving? Yeah, so many of these activities you should start to see an impact on your bill straight away. For example, if you put solar panels on the day they're connected and kind of switched on, uh, you, you'll start to see that reduction in your, your energy bills. If you're sealing up the, cap, the gaps and cracks, you should start to see or hopefully notice that you'll need slightly less heating and cooling. Uh, but in terms of those payback periods, you know, they kind of range from anything from less than a year for, for sealing up the gaps and cracks and maybe for some of the insulation through to maybe three to five years for the solar panels. And for some of those larger cost items like the double glazed windows, you might be talking 10 or 15 years or more for economic payback on those types of things. But of course, that kind of consideration doesn't take into account the improved thermal comfort of your home, the improvements to your health and well-being, and a whole range of other kind of social and environmental benefits which come from those retrofit activities. Finally, the point of this is sort of that it's very easy to do ourselves as, as homeowners and occupiers. Surely there's got to be some sort of standard sort of thing that we can encourage or suggest that governments can do. What do we need to kind of move this forward so our homes in the future are actually going to be built for purpose? Yeah, well, that might be uh, the topic of a, a longer conversation, but certainly <laughs> there's a lot I think that we can be doing in terms of setting performance requirements and quality requirements across existing and new housing and then looking to to make sure that we, we help the broader housing stock reach that performance. 
I think we also need to make sure we don't just focus on those who can afford to engage in retrofit, but we need to make sure that those people who are less well off or in social or public housing, they come along on this journey as well. We need to make it easier for tenants in rental properties to be able to engage in this or at least collaborate with landlords to be able to deliver improved um, retrofit options. Uh, and, and we can see some of these things happening overseas. You can see in the UK, for example, that they have uh, minimum performance requirements, uh, which means that when you then go to rent out or, or sell a property, uh, if it doesn't meet a certain requirement, then it will need to be improved. And you can see that the, the mandatory disclosure program in the ACT in Australia is the only such program that we have in Australia at the moment, has demonstrated that there is a market value for that information about performance, but also in terms of driving some of those sustainability outcomes. So I think there's a range of things that we can be doing there. And certainly governments around Australia have a significant role to help champion that journey. Mm. I think you're right. It is a much bigger conversation and I look forward to having it uh, at some point soon. Traves, thank you so much for joining us on Property Unpacked today. No worries. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Belong, Australia's first carbon neutral telco. What's caused the shift for many of us to start considering how we can reduce our carbon emissions and become more environmentally conscious at home? Hannah from Belong is here to discuss. With so many people focused on climate change, it seems like Australians have decided it's time to take account of their actions and reduce their carbon footprint. Becoming carbon neutral at home is a big deal for a lot of us, but a lot of big companies and events have also decided it's time to change. We've seen major sporting events reducing their carbon footprint, along with airlines, movie studios and even banks committing to reducing and offsetting their emissions. And telcos too. Yeah, Belong went completely carbon neutral in 2019. To switch to a Belong NBN plan, head to belong.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by Belong, Australia's first carbon neutral telco. Look, none of us really need an expensive sports car or fancy clothes or a fancy gadget, but we like to have them. I mean, we've got smartphones, smart fridges and smart doorbells now, and now even the humble toot is getting smarter. There's a whole bunch of new designs with features you never knew you wanted or even needed. Domain lifestyle producer Jessica Dale is here today to give us the loo down on these high-tech gadgets. Jessica, welcome to Property Unpacked. Thanks for having me. I must say I am flushed with excitement to be here today chatting about toilet. It's um, it's not a crap experience to be with you either. <laughs> Absolutely not. So tell me, what is happening in the world of smart toilets? Well, look, a great deal it would seem, uh, especially here in Australia, uh, anyone that's travelled to countries in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly tech-savvy Japan, pre-pandemic, obviously, would probably have encountered a smart toilet. They're those flashy-looking loos with a heap of buttons and symbols and lights and sensors that tend to be a little confusing but are hugely popular there. Now, thanks to advances in technology and a raft of improved features and functionality, popularity for modern smart toilets has really surged here too. While they're not new per se, they've always had been a bit of a niche product, something you'd only see in luxe resorts and hotels. Uh, but according to the people I spoke to for the story, we'll be seeing a lot more smart toilets installed in homes around the country this year and beyond. 
I was going to say, Jess, like I've definitely remember going to Japan and getting a little bit freaked out about, you know, some of the, <laughs> the features on the toilet. You know, the seat could be warmed or it would play music or it would, you know, to try and hide the features of, you know, what I was doing. Um, and I found it a little bit disconcerting and I also found, you know, the ability for it to, you know, have a little B-Day function as well, a little bit strange. I mean, are Australians really going to jump on this sort of um, smart toilet trend? It isn't, as you say, very common here at the moment. Yeah, you are right. And I think um, we're certainly not used to using a toilet as a bidet. We're not used to all of these smart features that these smart toilets have. But speaking to these two experts that I spoke to for this story, they think that we're going to see a real push in this area this year just because we have been spending a lot of time at home thanks to COVID this past year. So we spent more time inside our homes and and we're looking at ways to sort of make them more luxurious and more comfortable. We're not able to travel anymore, so we want that sort of international experience at home. So we're going to be seeing them a lot more. So what are some of the features that a smart toilet might offer for you? And what's the craziest one that you came across when you were researching? Well, in all honesty, all of these features sounded crazy to me when I first heard about some of the bells and whistles that these toilets have. But there are two things that really stood out for me, not because they're particularly crazy, but because they're just so convenient. I was chatting to the co-founder of Smart Toilet Australia, and she was telling me that some of their loos have sensors in the seat. So they'll detect when you've sat down and they then pre-wet the bowl with 200 mils of water. And then this combined with a special ceramic glaze that coats the inside of the bowl ensures that no waste matter can stick to the bowl. So there's no mess left behind for some lucky person to scrub off. (laughs) So the only part you're actually cleaning is the lid, not the bowl itself. Having a toilet that is self-cleaning, I think, is a huge win. (laughs) The other thing I loved was the deodorisation feature. So that eliminates any nasty smells that might be wafting in the air, which, again, great feature. I mean, that all sounds really great. And as you say, (laughs) it would be nice to not have to clean up sometimes after ourselves or other people who share our house, but it sounds a little pricey. So how much would one of these set us back? Yeah, you're right. So the models I was looking at for this story start at about $4,000 and go up to about $6,000. And that's depending on what features you're after. That seems a lot of money to spend on the dunny, but... (laughs) These things are seriously high tech and you're paying for that and and the convenience that they bring. So why would you buy it? Why would you buy a smart toilet? You know, it is a big outlay as we've discussed. Why would you go through with a purchase like this? Yeah, absolutely. And I must say, I was asking myself the exact same question before I started working on this story. I came in thinking, gosh, do we really need these in the home? Like, What's wrong with the not-so-smart toilets we already have? But I think I've become a bit of a smart toilet convert since writing this one, I'll be honest. I think you're going to want to invest in something like this. If you're a bit of a tech head, you know, you love your gadgets, you want a home that's kitted out with all the mod cons. And it's the convenience as well. The toilets come with all of these features to make life a little easier. And not only that, 
people see them as more hygienic. And as we discussed before, that's one thing that we're certainly more aware of now, thanks to COVID. Yeah, these toilets have these automated and and hands-free functions that reduce the need to touch the toilet. There's wash and dry functions that eliminate the need for toilet paper. So they're seen as more hygienic and, and cleaner than standard toilets that we that we have inside our homes now. I mean, yeah, with the push of a button, the toilet seat lifts when it's needed, flushes according to the business you've done in there, and then closes again once you're done. And Violetta, the the co-founder of Smart Toilet Australia, says she thinks that's what most people are installing them for is is for personal hygiene reasons. I guess also if you do put one in, it becomes a bit of a focal point for the home. So you might actually get a few friends over and road test it out. Exactly. It could be a bit of a, you know, conversation starter, party highlight. Let's go check out the toilet, see all the fun things it can do. You can finally bring toilet humour to the dinner table at the next party. Exactly. And it's acceptable. (laughs) Well, maybe the jury's still out on that. Jess, thanks for having a chat to us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Belong, Australia's first carbon-neutral telco and winner of Finder's Green Telco of the Year 2020. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and take a look at our previous episodes. Our producer is Hayley Cools with editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks so much for listening. Chat to you again soon.